king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder do you know him. My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He threatens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captive. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. mind if I preach this morning? Is that okay? I only heard a couple. I'm really, if, it's, um, if it's not the majority, then we can shut this thing down now and go to lunch. You okay if I talk about Jesus this morning? Is that, that's in the, uh, it's in the itinerary. You know, if you poll um, the country, if you look at surveys and studies, asking people what's the most important question that you could answer, what's the most important question you have, most people fall in the category of, of this question. These are good questions. Nothing wrong with these questions. These questions. 
What's the meaning of life? What's the purpose of life? Why is there so much pain and suffering in the world? And what can we do about the pain and suffering in the world? Most people land there when they, when they look at what is the most important question that they have. And those are, those are important questions. Nothing wrong with those questions. But I want to focus on two other questions today, two questions that I believe to be the two most important questions that one could answer. The first one is the question of Jesus where he says to his disciples, who do you say I am? And another question is from Dr. S.M. Lockridge, who you just heard from, when he asks, do you know him? But first, before we go any further, I want to talk about a friend of mine. His name is Patrick Thompson. I want to tell you a couple things about him. Patrick works at Donald E. Davis Arboretum. He studied horticulture at Auburn University. He went to Hoover High School. He's married to Mary Jo Thompson. He's from Bluff Park, Alabama. Uh, back in September, he and his family had a crawfish boil at their home. A lot of families showed up. I'm sure it was fantastic. He maintains a pretty thick beard. He enjoys the outdoors and wildlife. He likes scary movies, documentaries, Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, and the Indiana Jones series. All right, so this is Patrick Thompson. I do have a confession about him. Uh, I have no idea who this person is. Okay, I simply Facebooked on Friday the name Patrick Thompson. Why I chose that name, I have no idea. I don't know, I don't know a single Patrick Thompson. I just searched it at Facebook, and the first person that showed up, I clicked on the profile, and, uh, and I could read some information about him, could scroll through some pictures. I can tell you other things about him, but for the sake of time, we'll just leave it here. My point is, my biggest concern for the church today is that we simply have people filing in and out of church every Sunday who know Jesus the way I know Patrick Thompson. We know things about him, where he was born, who his parents were, some things he did in his life, some things he said, some places he traveled, some, some you know where he was when he even said a couple things. We know that he gave his life for us out of obedience to the Father. We know things about Jesus, but we don't know Jesus. We don't have a relationship with Jesus. I know things about this, this young man. I'm sure he's a fine young man. Never, never met him in my life. I might email him the link of this sermon so he can hear how much of a celebrity he is. But I don't know him. My concern is that we come to church and we don't we know things about Jesus, but we don't know Jesus. I want to look at Matthew 8 or Mark 8. And this is where we land today for uh, following the Lent study and the little, little bookmark. And I hope you're going along with that. It's been a really, uh, of course, it's the book of Mark, but it's, it's divided up in about 20 uh, verses a, a day. So it's not overwhelming um, amounts to read, but it is uh, it's very solid. So today we're in Mark 8. We'll go 27 through 30. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. Well, what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. And then Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about it. In Matthew's gospel, when Jesus, or when, when Peter answers him and says, you know, you're the Christ, you're the, you're the Son of God. Jesus' response is, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, blessed are you, because man did not reveal this to you. Nobody taught you this. God revealed this to you. Blessed are you, Peter, because the Father revealed who I am to you. And we see here his question to the disciples, who do you say that I am? I believe this to be the most important question in all of Scripture. 
to deny Jesus is to deny Christianity. To deny Jesus is to forfeit salvation. So who is this Jesus? I want to start by um, kind of listing off in rapid fire some, uh, some uh, a passage, but I have it broken up in bullet point. Um, Thomas C. Oden, he addresses this question of who is Jesus in his book, Classic Christianity. And here's what he says. About Jesus, he says, he was born of a poor family of a destiny-laden but powerless nation. The earliest traditions report that he was born in a squalid cave or stable among animals in an out-of-the-way village. The town he grew up in had a reputation that nothing good could ever come from there. He spoke a language, Aramaic, that few spoke then and now has been virtually forgotten. He is never said to have written anything except with his finger in the sand. He worked with his hands as a common laborer. He owned nothing of value. To the poor, he brought good news of the coming governance of God. His disciples were simple folks involved in artisan trades. Even in the face of cynical criticism, he did not cease to dine and converse with outcasts, to mix with the lowly and disinherited. He washed the feet of his, of his followers. He intentionally took the role of a servant. He reached out for other cultures despised by his own people. Remarkable things were reported of him. He touched lepers. He healed the blind. He was raised... He raised persons from the dead. These events pointed unmistakably to the unparalleled divine breakthrough that was occurring in his people's history. This was the decisive turnaround in the divine human story of conflicted love. He heralded a new age. He called all hearers to decide for or against God's coming reign. He himself was the sign of its coming. He called for complete accountability to God. His behavior was consistent with his teaching. He was born to an ethnic tradition widely despised and rejected, but he himself became even more despised and rejected by many of his own people. His enemies plotted to trap him and finally came to take his life. His closest friends deserted him when his hour had come to die. He knew all along that he would be killed, and sweat poured from his face as he approached death. He was betrayed by one of his closest associates. He submitted to a trial with false charges. His end was terrible. His back felt the whip, he was fed upon, his head was crowned with thorns, his wrists were in chains. On his shoulders he bore a cross through the city, spikes were driven through his hands and his feet. His whole body was stretched on a cross as he hung between two thieves. All the while he prayed for his tormentors that they might be forgiven, for they knew not what they were doing. He died on the cross, he had a spear shoved in his side, he was buried in a tomb, and then he rose from the dead. This is our Jesus. This is Jesus. Colossians 1.15 through 23 says this about Jesus. Not just things about him, but it begins to describe him. It says that Jesus is the invisible, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him. I want to stop there just for a second. So God was pleased with the Son to allow his fullness dwell in him. As Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So the fullness of God was met in this man. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to, him, to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. 
Paul goes on to say, once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. And if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you've heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. So, we, so right then, we've read a lot about things about Jesus. And then Colossians, Paul gives us a beautiful display of who Christ is and how he has a supremacy. He's the greatest thing. That all, through him, all things that exist were made. Nothing was created that exists without him. And that God was in Christ reconciling all who would believe to himself. How amazing does that make our God? That even in our hypocrisy... God says, I'll die for them. Not ashamed to be their God. Hebrews 1.3 says this, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful word. And after He had provided purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So the Son, Jesus, is the exact image, radiance, and glory of the Father. John 10, 1 through 18. I won't read these passages, but I'll tell you about them. John uh, 10, 1 through 18. In verse 10, Jesus says this, and this comes in the middle of Jesus giving this uh, illustration, imagery of a shepherd and the sheep, where he says, You know, I am, I am your shepherd, and you are my sheep, and I have a sheep and other sheep pens, and it's, it's that speech. But in the middle of it, he says in verse 10, The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, referring, of course, to the devil, to the evil one. The thief comes only to, to steal, kill, and destroy. He says, I have come that they may have what? Life. And have it what? Abundantly or have it, have it to the full, have it abundantly. The evil one comes to kill, steal, and destroy, but I've come that they may have life. So here's what Jesus is implying. Apart from Christ, there is existence, but there's no such thing as life. Not if Christ is life, then how can you have life without him? doesn't mean you can't be alive doesn't mean that you can't enjoy things. But to have life, to truly understand living, Jesus says, that's only through me. And again, the implication here is that apart from Christ, there is existence, but there is no such thing as life. I came and I came to give it to the full, to give it abundantly. And I say this quite a bit, and I know this is church, it's not a place for honesty, but if we were honest with ourselves... If we were honest with ourselves, most of us would say, right now, I don't feel like I'm living an abundant life in Christ. Anybody in a relationship with God right now, maybe it's difficult. Maybe you're frustrated with God. Have you ever been there? Of course, I feel like I'm there nearly every day. And if you haven't lived through that, more than likely it's coming for you. But we have seasons where, we, where we, we'll say of God, how is this good? You came to give abundant life. This doesn't seem like it to me. I question my own salvation. I can't seem to... to, to Make ends meet financially. Marriage is struggling. Children are wayward. How in the world can this be the abundant life? I'm trying to be obedient to Him as best I can. How is this abundant life in Christ? And is abundant life merely abundance of possessions? Or is it an abundance of contentment regardless of our circumstances? How do you define what abundant life is? And does it match what the scriptures would teach about life in Christ? In John 14, so just a couple uh, pages later, a couple chapters later, 
Jesus begins to teach his disciples that he is the, the way, the truth, and the life. And it's in this section of Jesus talking to his disciples. It's been read a lot recently at funerals here in the sanctuary. I've heard it a lot recently. Where Jesus is saying, in my Father's house, there's many rooms. Right? And if that were not so, I would have told you. And I'm going now to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I'll come back and take you to be with me. That where I am, you'll be with me also. And I believe it's Thomas that speaks up and says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? To which Jesus responds, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. There's something interesting that Jesus says I want to draw your attention to. In the early stages of, of John 14, and we're looking at verses 1 through 4, where Jesus says, in my Father's home, there's many rooms. But this is what's interesting. He says, if that was not so, if that were not so, I would have told you. I don't understand, or didn't understand for the longest time, why would Jesus say it that way? Why wouldn't Jesus just say, I'm telling you, in my Father's house, there's many rooms. Why does he say, in my Father's house, there's many rooms, and if that were not true, I would have told you it wasn't true. So what is he getting at here? Again, the implication here that Jesus is addressing this longing the disciples have for something greater, for something else, for something bigger. And Jesus is essentially saying the reason you have this longing for something greater is because the something greater exists. The reason you hunger is because the food exists. The reason you thirst is because the water exists. So my Father's home, with my Father, there's a place for you. And if that were not so, I would have told you. Again, Jesus is going to say, apart from me, there's there's existence, but there's no such thing as life. And then he's going to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So this is what we know about about Jesus. In fact, the scripture is going to go on to give us these titles of Jesus. Here's what the scripture says, describing Jesus and defining Jesus. It says that Jesus is the exact image of God. He is the first and the last, the Alpha and Omega, the one who is who was and who is to come, the Almighty. He's the Word of God. He's the last Adam. He's the bright morning star. He's the rising sun. He's the living one. He's the Amen. He's the true light, the righteous one. He's the Lion of Judah. He's the King of the Jews. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I'm the gate. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and I'm the true vine. Jesus is the seed of Abraham, he's the root and offspring of David, he's the faithful witness, he's Emmanuel, he's the capstone, he's the rock, he's the bridegroom, he's the firstborn among many brothers, he's the firstborn over all creation, he's the firstborn from the dead, he's the firstfruits, he's the heir of all things, he's the Lord, he's the head of the church, he's the chief shepherd, he's the prince and savior, he's the rabbi, he's the master, he's the teacher. He's Jesus, the Lord who saves. He's the man of sorrows. He's the Passover lamb. He's the horn of salvation. He's the consolation and redemption of Israel. He's the deliverer and redeemer. He's the author and perfecter of salvation. He's the mediator, the high priest, and he's the son of man. Who do you say Jesus is? This is how the Bible describes him. This is how the Bible defines him. But Jesus asks of you, who do you say I am? Do we know him? It's not good enough to know these things about Him. So we can know that Jesus is our Lord and Savior, and most of us have no problem with Him being our Savior. Right? Like He saves us from what? Like saves us from eternity without God, so He saves us from hell. He also saves us to God, saves us to our inheritance, saves us to heaven. So we have no problem with Jesus being our Savior. Most of us will say amen to that. But would we say amen to Him being our Lord? Do we want him to tell us how to live? 
Who is he to tell us in the Bible we must adhere to his standard? We have no problem with him being our Savior. We just don't want to submit to him as Lord. But can he be one and not the other? Can he be your Savior but not your Lord? How can we claim we love Jesus, we love God, have our affections stirred for Him, and then refuse to submit to His teaching? Or claim that we love God, but just deny what the Bible says He is. He's the only way to heaven. He is life, and life is found in nothing else but Christ alone. Acts 4.12, we'll we'll end with this. Acts 4.12. Peter and John stand before the Sanhedrin and they say this. The Sanhedrin was just the religious elite at the time, religious authorities. They say this. They say, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. So salvation can come through no other means, no other man, no other name, only through Jesus. And we're either justified by the blood of Jesus Christ or we're not justified at all. And to deny Jesus is to forfeit salvation. So we'll end as we started. The question from Jesus that he asked that we, we can't, at some point we have to, we'll answer it at some point. We'll either answer it here on earth or we'll answer it when we stand before him when we die. But who do you say I am? And then the second question would be from S.M. Lockridge, do you know him? If you don't know him, my hope is that today can be the day of redemption. And that you, you can leave here in a relationship with Him. My hope is if you had that relationship, maybe you've kind of drifted from Him. My hope today is that we can realign back to who Christ is and who He says He is and who God says He is. With that said, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank You for revealing who You are in Your Word. God, I, th- I thank You that You are our Savior. But Lord, help us to submit to You as the Lord of our life. You are our all-sufficient Savior. God, you're the reason why we strive and, and, and toil in life so that we may gain you and a deeper understanding of who you are. Forgive us, God, when we pursue other things more than you, when we look for life in other things more. God, help us to uh, seek you above all. God, I pray above all things you're glorified. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.